0: The projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, the podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode 26, Abbott and Costello meet Biffle and Schuster, in which Jim Reed and I chat with a member of the 21st century's greatest comedy team of the 1930s, about one of the all-time classic comedy teams. Confused? Well... Who was it that told me I had oil in my backyard? Hmm? Who was it that made me sell that phony stock to my friends? Who was it that ran
1: away with the money? Who was it that made Mary mad at me? If you're getting tired of the who's, I got a what for you on second base. keep those
0: remarks to yourself. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you listened to the last episode, which would be episode 25, then you would have heard Jim and me heaping deserved praise on guest Leonard Maltin's book, Movie Comedy Teams. Well, today we're going to zero in on one of the classic comedy teams featured in that book, as well as another what might be called neo-classic comedy team. Joining us for that discussion is the co-author of The Annotated Abbott and Costello, Nick Santa Maria. Nick also happens to be the alphabetically first member of the retro comedy team Biffle and Schuster.
1: Biffle and Schuster are on the job.
0: Nick, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as it happens, I just was browsing on previous guest Frank Thompson's podcast. Another dear friend. And realized mm-hmm. that you did a, an episode with him a number of years mm-hmm. ago. So it was fascinating to listen to that and hear your background and the discussion. And it was kind of like, I thought, wow, this guy's not only multi-talented and funny, but he's like a comedy scholar, you know, breaking down these classic comedians and and teams and whatnot. So that was, that was fun to listen to. Not going to yeah. retread uh, a lot of that material, although there'll be some dovetailing, I think. For instance, why don't you go ahead and start by giving us just you know, a little thumbnail resume, your, your background as a performer, writer, and so forth?
1: Well, I'm from the New York area. In fact, listening to your podcast with Leonard, he was around about a decade before me, but we came from the same area. So I grew up with the same influences, the same broadcasts that he uh, enjoyed as a child. But I grew up loving vaudeville. And I say vaudeville because it's, it's like a blanket assessment. The great comedians from the golden days, most of them came from vaudeville and they had that aesthetic. And I clicked into it for some reason as a child, as a very young child, probably five or six. I remember seeing Lou Costello for the first time. I believe it was from the television show. And it was like love at first sight. It was like those cartoons, the uh, Pepe Le Pew cartoons. Am I allowed to say Pepe Le Pew? Um, Sure. If anybody uh,
0: complains, I can edit it. Yeah,
1: (laughs) don't don't let me cancel you. Don't don't do that. Uh, So anyway, it was like ding. I I found what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I knew it at that moment. At five or six years old, I was going to make people laugh, and sure enough, by the since the age of fifteen, when I started doing my first stand-up gigs, I started a trajectory that hasn't stopped. Really, it'll be fifty years in March that wow. I've been performing and writing. I've had a show, two shows off-Broadway. I've been in two Broadway shows. I worked for Mel Brooks for five years and the producers. I don't know. I can go on and on. I was the genie in Aladdin, Musical Spectacular, which was a very big deal at Disney in California. I was the first live genie hired, and I was given free reign to lib. That was also why I was hired for Grease, my first Broadway show, I played Vince Fontaine, and they had me do a 45-minute pre-show every night where I would ad-lib with the audience. So uh, that's kind of my specialty. And before I moved from Los Angeles, I was kind of the guy to go to when you had a crazy show with a strong foundation, but I could float around. And do pretty much what I wanted, including following ladies into the bathroom, and things like that.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> always a handy skill. No, um, well, it was something I, I worked on as a child. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> well, and and I would just encourage anyone. Maybe to, we can cut that out too. Uh, nah, we cut very little out here, but uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. The, the I would encourage anyone to visit the commentary track podcast of Frank Thompson's, and there's a lot of A lot of good interviews there and Nick being among them. And you can uh, get a little more detail on his career and whatnot. I was going to ask you the origins of your interest in comedy teams. I think you probably already touched on that. But if you want to elaborate a little bit more, feel free to and then kind of maybe move into how Abbott and Costello specifically became uh, apparently your favorite.
1: Okay. That's a, an easy answer, actually. Not an not a especially happy one,
0: but a, an easy Take one. your time, because I love it when I can ask a guest you know, a question and then go get my car detailed while the answer is schooling out. <laughs> you know? Okay. I'll stick to these details.
1: But I was a um, third child, third son. And by the time I was ready to pop, my mom was convinced it was a girl and it was me. And then she got her girl a year later. So I pretty much was left to my own devices. You know, I was sort of the tossed aside one. And I tried various ways to get attention and gain favor in my parents' eyes. And I realized that they were at their happiest when they had contemporaries over for, you know, coffee and cake or dinner or whatever. They would always talk about the movies they grew up watching. And that was the depression. We're talking about the 1930s and 40s, basically. And you heard them laugh and they would recount their favorite scenes and their favorite performers. So I got it in my little head that if I learned as much about this stuff as I possibly could, they would pay attention to me. You know, they would they would look at me like they looked at my brothers and my sister. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> being the lunatic that I am, I went a little too far. I looked at these, especially the comedians. They, they were the ones I was really drawn to. Just like Leonard, uh, Leonard Maltin said, uh, it was the comedians. They were like my best friends. Spending time with these, you know, with Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers. But Abbott and Costello were my first loves. And I have to say that in the New York area where I grew up, I was, I was raised, I was born in Brooklyn, raised on Long Island. We had no shortage uh, movies like the Abbott and Costello films. We had their television show. We had Laurel and Hardy shorts. After School, The Three Stooges, Our Gang. You know, you name it, we had it. And uh, we they had to fill a lot of time. So we had the benefit that the kids today don't have. I hate to sound like you know Bert Mustin, but um, we had the benefit of not having choices. We had seven channels, so. We kind of said, "Okay, let's sit down and watch this black and white movie from 1936." You know, and we'd watch it, and we'd realize, that, "Hey, this isn't bad. This is pretty good." So I feel that my generation is really the last to truly care about this stuff because that's where we came from.
0: Seven well, I channels. I, 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 sorry. the 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 Graham Chapman line comes to mind. Luxury. Rotary. Yeah, Jim, Jim and I were in Tulsa. We had three channels, unless you oh, counted yeah. NET, you know, later PBS. Oh, my. Uh,
1: well, you know, we had less than they have today. And I, I often explain to people who complain about this phenomenon that if you were a young person today and you had the choice of watching one of over a million choices we have now uh, with streaming, CGI and state-of-the-art sound and wide picture and whatever, or a little square, black and white, scratchy, old movie featuring people that have been dead for decades, what would you do? You would do what most kids do. So I I say that, you know, there'll always be a niche for this stuff just like they they have for Sherlock Holmes and you know other things Titanic there are all these little niche groups that buy every product that comes out every book that's what will be left and it's almost what it is now i hate to say it but it's true well,
2: you know if if you grew up in the 60s and 70s like we did mm-hmm. um even with our three channels black and white films from the 30s and 40s were the staple on television so we really had no choice but to get comfortable with it. That's the thing now is I find when I introduce younger people to really good black and white movies. And my my go to is always Laura. I always run. Oh, what a great Laura movie. They, they love it. But the thing is, they don't give it a chance. They're not comfortable with that. So,
1: you know. Well, so many it, they did a, a poll not too long ago, actually about 10 years ago, and it was said that. Even adults, when they come upon a black and white picture, they go right past it. They don't even stop to see what it is. So we are the last of a species (laughs) that appreciate and love these films. Uh, Oh, so you asked me about and Costello. So I did. they, They were my first loves. And I, especially Luke Costello, who, let's face it, to we kids... He was another child. He was one of our pals, you know, Bud was the parent, Lou was the the kid. But he inspired me to the point where my mother thought I had something wrong with me. I'd be in the backyard practicing pratfalls like him, you know, and got pretty good at it, too. I got to use it a lot during stage work, especially. But uh, he was just it for me. I just thought he was hilarious. I think it helped that I was a chubby kid, an Italian family. From the East Coast, this was all Lou, too. He had all of that. So I immediately bonded with him. Eventually, the Marx Brothers showed up. And uh, that I must have been, I don't know, probably seven or eight when they showed up. And that became a whole other thing. You know, Groucho became like a god. And uh, I'll never, speaking of which, I'll never forget, my room was just one picture after another. I had obituaries hanging in my room. Leo Gorsi, Donald Crisp, you know, all these <laughs> character actors. My father used to call my room the morgue. <laughs> so <laughs> I figured the morgue the merrier. But But <laughs> uh, so my mom is upstairs in my room, and I come in, and she's looking at all the pictures of uh, Groucho, especially. And uh, she says, all these pictures of Groucho and, and Abbott and Costello and Moral and Hart. She goes, can't you put up one picture of Jesus I just said, Mom, I understand you got very few laughs. And that was the end of the conversation. So, you know. Can't imagine why. Yeah, exactly. So that was, that's where my head was at. And there was a, a love formed for Abbott and Costello in my heart and on one of our stations when i was growing up every saturday afternoon what first morning at 10am they would have an aben Costello movie and then at 2pm a different Abbot and Costello movie so i never went out on saturdays and then it turned into a sunday morning thing and east coasteners will go along with me here channel 11 wpix showed Abbot and Costello every sunday morning at 11:30 and uh, it was only a 90 minute time slot so commercials they had to edit the films and a lot of them we didn't see the entire films until they came out on video which is very interesting uh, so they were always there they were a constant in my life and I would have to say that as far as my own career and what they did for me I think between them Jack Benny and Croucho I got the greatest education in comic timing that you could possibly get
0: yeah. No doubt. Now, in terms of, now I mentioned the book, The Annotated Abbott and Costello, co-written by you. Mm -hmm. And Matthew Conium. Yes. Who had previously written The Annotated Marx Brothers. Yes. Which I do not have, so. You should. You should get it. Yes, I I should. I am, I I feel very bad for not having that
1: one. Put down that knife. Put down that knife. It's okay. It's okay not to have the book. Okay. But thank you, Debbie. So, Take it away.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so how did, how did uh, The Annotated and Castel come about?
1: It's an interesting story. Um, his book, The Annotated Marx Brothers, is a great favorite of we Marx Brother fans. Matthew is an incredible writer. He's one of my favorites. He's a slave to good research. And everything he writes is interesting. It's really quite wonderful. So I was a fan. And he has a web page, the Marx Brother Council. Right, and every month they do the Marx Brothers Council podcast, which I've been a guest on I think four times. And he got in touch with me one day, saying that his second favorite comedy team was Abbott and Costello, and he would wanted to do an annotated Abbott and Costello book, following the same form as the annotated Marx Brothers. Now, when we say annotated, every chapter has time codes from the DVDs, or in his case, the PAL, recordings of the films. So as he's talking about a certain part of the film, he's telling you where to go to see it as you're reading about it. A a wonderful concept, really. And he decided he wanted to do this for Abbott and Costello, but he was just way too lazy. The Marx Brothers had 13 films to look at, whereas Abbott and Costello have 38, including little extras here and there. So he knew that I was a huge fan and he asked me if I would join him. And I have to tell you, he was my ticket in, basically. I never wrote, I mean, I, I wrote a self published book with Will Ryan, Schuster to my Biffle. And I'm very proud of it. It's a very good book. It's written by Biffle and Schuster, and it's Biffle and Schuster's Portable Guide to Proper Etiquette. <laughs> I'm not sure where to get it now. It's just quite the collector's item. There were also five on my bookshelf. You have one? Oh, yeah. Oh, Jim, how do you like that? Do you have any of the comic books? No. There are five comic books. I mean, professionally done. And there's a compendium of all five that you could still get on Amazon.com. Anyway, my late, wonderful partner, Will Ryan. So anyway, so he got in touch with me and said, let's split up the movies. Let's both make up a list of the films we want to cover. And we'll see how many crossover, you know, whatever. And it was not a problem at all. So it's you've got one book with two points of view. Basically, with him, like I say, it's just incredible research, a lot of pre-production stuff, things like that. Wonderful, wonderful, interesting stuff. And I come from more of a performer side where I'm talking about what I'm actually seeing on the screen as I'm watching it, pointing out things that you may not get. And that's all annotated. And uh, it worked out beautifully. McFarland Publishing did a beautiful job on printing up the book. I love the way it looks. And uh, a lot of people have written, a lot of reviews have written that it's definitive, a definitive
0: book. You don't need to go anywhere else. So very happy about it. Yeah, that makes sense. And you warned me. There's a lot in there. And so yeah. uh, I have not been able to get through every word of it, but I've enjoyed reading what I have and I really appreciate the format of it. And you mentioned the timings being in there so people can go right to a particular scene. And I also appreciate the fact that as you say, you divided them up so that you did the main profile on some of the films. Matthew did the main profile on others, but whichever one you didn't do your co-writer had some notes at the end of his own perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I like that. And then at and the end so back, did I on his, on his. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, Right, yeah, going both ways, yeah. yeah, and and then at the back you've got something that's fun—the ultimate Abbott and Costello top ten, where mm-hmm. you you pulled a whole bunch of people as to their top 10. You include yours and Matthew includes mm-hmm. his. And then you've got all kinds of other people, some of whom I'd not heard of. But you've got some prior guests from Movie Nights and Matinees. You've got Joe Adamson, Paul Castiglia, mm-hmm. Bob Fermanek, Leonard Maltin, a couple of well-known directors, Joe Dante and John Landis. So I mm-hmm. thought that was fun. And Landis
1: wrote the intro. Or the
0: uh, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh and then you have kind of the the end result of throwing everybody's into the hopper and seeing, you know, which ten were the most highly ranked across the board.
1: Right. Yeah, an interesting concept, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Getting everybody's uh, top ten. And you know, some of the people that we asked, including Randy Scredfit, they just weren't as familiar with the Abbott and Costello films. And I'm I learned in writing the book that a lot of the fans, in fact, most of the fans, it seems, prefer the television show to the films because it cuts out the songs, it cuts out the young lovers and all that stuff. It just so happens that I love the songs in the movies. I love the entire experience of the movies. And I'm one of those people that believes that you can't watch an old movie with a modern sensibility. You have to put yourself in that seat during 1942 while you're brothers overseas and you're watching this film it's the only fair way to watch it so i i have no problem i'm a big
2: andrew sisters man so
1: oh yeah yeah and how (laughs) about martha ray and joan davis and william bendix and all these great great character people it's just so much fun yeah
0: Yeah. well in in leading up to this i watched some that i had not seen before and unfortunately a lot of the ones i had seen it's been a long time since i've seen them so i don't have the most vivid memory but Mm -hmm. I thought I had seen, pardon my sarong, but it turns out I had not. Oh, uh, and I loved the musical number with the ink spots in there that leads Let's, into that amazing dance routine. Um,
1: tip tap and toe,
0: exactly. They I'm thinking, close. okay, it's like if the Nicholas Brothers had a third brother, if they were, uh-huh. uh huh. Oh, with uh, the, in, on in that there. table with them yeah.
1: sliding around on the tabletop. Yeah, it's just one amazing of my to watch. Favorite, I, I always say it's my third favorite dance routine of all time on film. Behind the Nicholas Brothers
0: and Astaire. Astaire is, I can name 10 that Astaire do. Oh, sure. But yeah, wonderful stuff. You know, I'm just concerned because it's so easy to talk to you and have you give a great explanation of these things with a lot of depth and insight. So I'm probably going to have to cut some of the stuff that I thought we'd be talking about. I mean, I was thinking, okay, a basic history of Abbott and Costello, how they became a team. But I don't want i, I don't want to miss other more interesting stuff, quite frankly. (laughs) May I suggest something uh, along those lines? Sure. The very first episode
1: of our brand new podcast, Abbott and Costello Meet the Podcast, it's on all the major platforms. Listen to episode one and you will learn every last detail
0: about how they got together and their early lives and all of that. Fantastic. That saves some time here that we can use in other ways. Now, you mentioned about the adult-child relationship earlier, and this is something that you talk about in the book between Abbott and Costello. And I'm just wondering, I think I have a sense of it, but just for you to explain how that differs from, say, Laurel and Hardy or later on Martin and Lewis.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, by the way. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. My work is done. (laughs) this is work so anyway uh, bud and lou basically lou was a man child and bud was the abusive parent basically slapping him around and pushing him into dangerous situations and what have you so i always said that he was the abusive parent and lou was the uh mischievous and somewhat innocent child his actions matched that baby face he had That was his number one asset as far as I was concerned. But anyway, when you compare that to Laurel and Hardy, I always considered them in two ways. One is that Stan was from outer space and Ollie found him and just spent the rest of his life trying to figure out and explain where Stanley comes from and why he does what he does. The other thing is I find them when I watch them and 90 percent of their films bear me out, they're like a married couple. With Ali as the woman, the wife, who cares about what other people think about them. You know what I mean? He's got the ego. He wants appearances to be great, you know, in front of other people. Stan couldn't give, you know what? He just couldn't. Um, he has no ego. So Ali always pays because he has the ego. But they come off as a domineering wife and a clueless husband, as far as I'm concerned. They even sleep together. Martin and Lewis. Interesting about that. I look at them basically as a nightclub duo. I'm not crazy about any of their films. I think there's a couple that are enjoyable, especially the last ones, I think. Artists and Models and...
0: That's my favorite.
1: um, Or Hollywood or Bust, I think is fun too. Uh, Even though you knew they were hating each other (laughs) while they were making it. But I think that I look at, and I say this in the book, I look at Martin and Lewis as... Two really talented performers in an uncomfortable situation. If you watch the, and this, these are my favorite Abbott and Costello TV shows, by the way, are the Colgate Comedy Hours, the live shows they did. I like it. I like it much better than their filmed television show. Uh, I guess as a performer, you know, it just makes more sense sure. to see them working live. But Martin and Lewis, Dean, during the sketches, unless he's like throwing the script away and just laughing along with Jerry. He looks uncomfortable. He's not butt app. They try to write him that way, pushing Jerry around. He gets the good steak while Jerry gets the hamburger, that kind of thing. And it doesn't work for Dean. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And Jerry's like all over the place. And Jerry's playing more for Dean than for us, basically. I, I have this theory that he was in love with Dean. And Dean just couldn't handle it an author friend of mine who's passed away since has kind of borne me out on that. So yeah, they don't really click until the last 10, 15 minutes of the show when they're in front of their orchestra and they're doing their nightclub stuff. And it was just two great performers together. Basically. I I don't see that kind of relationship that Laurel and Hardy had or at Costello.
0: Hmm.
2: Okay. How about a little pushback? Okay, I read in your in your introduction, and you just talked about it, about Laurel and Hardy. Now, I agree totally with everything about your opinions about Evan Costello. I love him, you know. Mm-hmm. But you talked about Stan Laurel not having the, the range like Lou Costello had. As and, an actor. Yeah. But the thing is, I don't think he ever had the opportunity to show that, because he always played the same character. Once, when
1: he played Lord Paddington. In mm-hmm. Chump at Oxford. Right, right. We saw another side of him. Yeah. That we didn't know existed. And for me, that's one of my favorite films of theirs because mm-hmm. of that, that he shows some diversity. Yeah. Um, but it, he couldn't carry a film like
2: Lou did. No, I think track. he would have been a good character type. Yeah. A know?
1: second, a second. Like, banana Charles made,
2: Butterworth. I Charlie you know. Butterworth. Yeah. I always yeah. say Charlie Butterworth is, is
1: so much like Stan. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, he, he would have been fine. And My personal opinion is that had they split up in 1938 when they said mm-hmm. they were going to, I think Ollie would have been a fine character actor, even a star character actor like Edward mm-hmm. Arnold, you know, or Guy Kibbe. Yeah. Uh, and Stan, I think, would have followed Charlie Chase to Columbia. I think he would have been a director, writer, producer. I
0: yeah.
1: don't think he would have starred in the things. I think he would have gone behind the camera,
2: which is what he was doing before Ollie. Would have been interesting to see when they retired in 1950, if he had done like uh, Bobby Clark and uh, Bert Wheeler, and you know, done television, done early television, you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't think he wanted to stray from what. Yeah. I think about this. He created, for the most part. He yeah. created the most indelible comedy team
2: yeah. in history. He didn't want to harm their legacy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's why yeah. he didn't do It's a Mad, 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 Mad World when they asked right. him. Right. He didn't want the kids to see him that way. You
2: know?
1: Yeah. You got to love him. You just got to yeah. love that guy.
0: Well, it strikes me uh, maybe one reason for the the distinction between what oliver hardy might have done as a solo performer versus stan is that the established stan character and maybe this was his preferred way of performing was his character was reactive Mm -hmm. as opposed to ollie who was an instigator of situations and Mm -hmm. and dialogue and things like that
1: right he took care of the human stuff You know, he took care Mm -hmm. of having, he was the spokesperson. He was the one that made sure the house was in order. He was the one, you know, to make sure that they were doing the work. And Stan was just kind of floating around, causing bricks to fall on his head. You know, that's basically it. I think Stan had a kind of a, I think he was, what's the word I'm looking for? He had a cruel side to him, a dark side to him. A lot of Laurel and Hardy fans are loath to admit this. But he had a very dark side to him. Even in life, he had a dark sense of humor. Mm. And the, st- the stuff he puts Ollie through sometimes made me uncomfortable. When I was a child, I used to feel sorry for Ollie, because for, you know, the things that happened to him in the films. Mm. Uh, it wasn't bad enough to be obese and, and uncomfortable about it. Uh, Stan had to get a close-up of his rear end, you know?
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting back to Abbott and Costello. Oh, who? Um... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys. He's on first. Yeah. Well, uh, good uh, segue there, because I was going to ask now, of course, who's on first beyond argument, most famous routine that they ever did. What Mm -hmm. would you say is their next most classic routine?
1: Well, the history books tell us that the second favorite amongst audiences was the mustard routine. Mustard goes with the hot dog, but I don't find that my second favorite routine that they do is seven times 13 is 28.
0: Or as I like, I re- refer to as the uh, the Evan Costello rent calculator.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of they, the
0: uses, yeah.
1: They did it a lot. Biffle and Schuster even did their own version of it. And to me, I teach classes on show business and comedy and things like that. And whenever I showed this scene, seven times 13, the laughs came at the exact same point every time. I showed it. So if somebody tells you that comedy isn't math, that it isn't science, you tell them wrong. Okay. Because it is, (laughs) it's all about timing and science.
0: Well, okay. This prompts a question that I had in my mind, and this is not really even on my list, but I I just feel like you're the person that I want to ask this of. And that is, I, I think you and I are about the same age. And I find that, I rarely actually laugh at comedy anymore, and I think it's just a matter of we've seen so many comedies, we've seen so many gags, heard so many jokes, we see them coming. And I think an integral part of effective comedy is the element of surprise. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are things that... I see, and I, that will make me smile, that will make me chuckle, but it's extremely rare. Well, it's fairly rare for me to laugh out loud. It's extremely rare for me to see something that makes me double over laughing, gasping for air.
2: Yeah. And it's usually
0: when you get caught by surprise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm curious, what was, what would you say was the last thing that caught you so off guard? It just slayed you. (laughs)
1: this one i you i actually write about it in the book and it's from pardon my Sarong, uh which i've seen 177 times at least and it's one of my favorites by the way and at one point and this is you're you're going to think i'm nuts but at one point uh lou has to go up to the temple of doom to probably meet his death And uh, it's a hero's goodbye. All the natives are out to say, you know, goodbye. None of them speak English. And Bud takes the opportunity at this point to pay him the dollar he owes him. Now, if that's not funny enough, Lou, this is why I love Lou Costello, Lou just starts going, now you give me the dollar? I'm going up that thing and you're giving me the dollar now? And he turns to a native who clearly cannot understand what he's saying and starts explaining it to him. He gives me the dollar now and I'm going up to the, things (laughs) like that. I guess as a performer, it's called layers, you know? And this is where I think Lou has it over Stan Laurel. No offense to Laurel and Hardy fans, but Lou had layers. Lou, Lou was an actor. One of my main points in the book And, you know, it's so funny. I just read a a beautiful review from Leonard Malton about the book. And he brings up the fact that I mentioned that their acting ability is what sold those routines. Those routines are ancient. They're ancient. They did them, Weber and Fields did them back in 1901, you know, and then in minstrel shows in the mid 1800s, they were doing them. So Abbott and Costello were doing the ancient material. How did they sell it? How did they make it work? It was because they were such great actors. Watch them during Who's on First. They both believe 110% what they're saying, both of them. And it wouldn't work any other way. There's a recording of Bud was sick and Lou did Who's on First with Sid Field, Sidney Fields from uh, the Abbott Costello show. And it just doesn't cut it. And he's a wonderful burlesque performer and straight man, but it just didn't cut it. So uh, they were terrific actors and they made that nonsense material. They made us believe every word. The horse eats his fodder.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Before we segue over to uh, Biffle and Schuster, we've had so many teases of that so far. Uh, I just have to ask this. Which of the Abbott Costello films do you think most perfectly captures their comedy style?
1: I, I, that's a very good question, and it's it's subtle uh, because, you know, my first thought is to say their best movie is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is my favorite, and won the best in our top ten contest as well. But I would say if you wanted to show a movie that represented the boys and one that I don't think anyone could be bored by or whatever is It from 1942.
0: When the microphone was turned on, 10,000
1: volts went through his body. I beg your pardon? He got 10,000 volts. That's enough to elect anybody. He should be president. No, not that kind. What kind? Volts. That's what I said. He got 10,000. You know what
0: volts are. They're what? That's right. What'd I say? Volts or watts? Well, go ahead and tell me. You just said it. I just asked you to tell me what I said. What I volts said? Volts or what? Volts or what? Yes. I'm asking you, what's volts? That's right. Don't try to twist me now. What are you talking about? A dialect? What's, what's, what's? What's, 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 what? Volts. What's volts? That's right. Well, go ahead and tell me. Well, that's it. What are volts? That's right. I'm asking you. What? Votes. What's our volts? What? That's right.
2: Next thing you know, you'll be telling me what's on second base. Oh, no, don't that's stop. That's enough. Don't
0: stop. I quit.
1: This is before Lou's son passed away, so he's still very, he's got that childlike energy, but is just, but but is, was never better, actually. And Lou does a thing with Limburger cheese that just, that's something that still makes me laugh till I cry. And there's no surprises. It's just so funny. And I still laugh out loud at who's on first. I can't
0: hear it without laughing. Isn't that interesting? Well, it's such perfect timing. It is. For, uh, it for is. one thing, with that dialogue. I'll okay.
1: break your arm, you say, who's on
2: first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, uh, and uh, the only two Abbott and Costellos I have 16 millimeter prints of are Meet Frankenstein, and Time of Their Lives. Oh, what a great movie. I, I love Time of Their Lives. Me too. I mean, it's, it's not your typical Abbott and Costello, but it's but very when people, well done.
1: When we talk about them as actors, I always point to mm-hmm. that film. And they're yeah. both yeah. terrific. They're both just terrific. I don't think Bud could have carried a movie. He wasn't built that way. But he would have been a really good character actor.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: Lou proved that he could you know, handle movies on his own.
0: All right. So. Biffle and Schuster. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to thank Jim for giving me he had a, a spare copy of the DVD of that. You, so, man. for the people who have not yet discovered Biffle and when Schuster. When it came
2: out, I bought 10 copies and I've been giving them out to anybody that anybody that showed any interest. So,
1: Jim, thank you so much. That yeah. really touches me.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So, Please. A lot of love
2: went into those things. Uh,
0: it's yeah. it's evident. So, uh, yeah, for people who have not uh, discovered them yet, give us a quick rundown. Well, Biffle & Schuster, my partner, my late partner,
1: uh, he passed away in November of 2022. He came up with this idea. Uh, we had met in 2006, and he said, you know what? We work really well together and we harmonize together and all this. He played the ukulele beautifully. He said, how about we start like an old fashioned comedy team? And I said, well, fine. But what would we do with it? You know, what what would we do with the comedy team? from?" How did did you
0: meet? I mean, what were the what was the circumstances where you teamed Uh, together? I, I was living I was
1: living in Los Angeles and I had met a young
0: lady by the name of Rusty Frank, who is a
1: one of the top tap dancers and top tap dance historians. Uh, in the country, if not the world. And I met her at a concert one night and we hit it off as friends. Uh, She invited me over one day and she said, I invited another friend over. and I think you two would hit it off. And it was Will Ryan. That was 2006. And we were friends. We We were like that ever since. So he came up with the name Biffle & Schuster. I immediately said, no, let's use our real names. I've been been kicking around for 40 years. Let, Let me, you know. And he was right. I was wrong, of course. And we just played a couple of like old age homes and libraries and things like that. Very small things that we could break in and see if it worked. And eventually we just kind of forgot about it. And one day on Facebook, I posted a picture. We had taken some publicity pictures of the two of us. And there was one of us bursting through a frame, a picture frame, with big smiles and our hats on and everything. And I posted it on Facebook. And Michael Schlesinger, an ex-studio executive, worked for everybody from uh, MGM to uh, Sony and all that, Columbia, he wrote, it's a frame-up. And then I wrote back, hey, that sounds like a short subject. That sounds like a short title. And he wrote back, well, why don't you write one? And I said, okay, I'll write a a synopsis. So I wrote a synopsis about Biffle and Schuster delivering this famous painting during a society party. And, of course, all kinds of things happened, blah, blah, blah. He wrote back immediately and said, too expensive. There's no way that could be done. Let me take a shot at it. The next thing I knew, I was walking into a studio. There was Joe Dante blessing us, blessing our experience. What a wonderful guy he is. And we did our first Biffle & Schuster. And this was like 2012. And that was called It's a Frame-Up. And uh, it's on the DVD. And it has some
0: Abban Costello type dialogue in it.
1: On purpose, yes. We do that uh, tuna fish uh, oil. The oil and water.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, now what? Oh, don't worry, it's very simple. There are two kinds of
1: paintings, oil and water. Oil and water? You mean like salad dressing? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, Thousand Islands. An island's got to be surrounded by water. Will you stop? Suppose they find oil on that island. We've Forget about the islands. We're not talking about an island. We're talking about a medium. A medium? You mean she could tell my future? No, not that kind of medium. A medium is like oil or water. There you go. Back to oil and water again. Next thing you know, you'll be talking about tuna fish. What are you babbling about? Well, don't they pack tuna fish in oil and water or they pack tuna fish in or? No oil or water. Mm. Forget about the tuna fish. That is not a medium. Oh, of course not. A tuna fish can't tell my future. (laughs) You won't have a future if you don't shut up. Well, stop trying to confuse me. I don't have to try. And I have to tell you that, you know, this was a one shot deal and it was the most fun I ever had in 40 whatever years at that point. Two dreams came true. I starred in a film and I got to be a comedian from the 1930s. I mean, what more could I ask possibly? So we did this film. Uh, it was edited. I hated it at first and then actually grew to love it. That's so weird when that happens. (laughs) And a few years later. Michael Schlesinger, God bless him, calls up and says, "I wrote four more." I'm like, what he goes, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna shoot them. We, I booked the studio for five weeks, and we've got some good people going in, and blah blah blah." So we got enough for a feature. He wanted to put it together as a feature, like you know the Biffle and Schuster Lafarama, but could find no distribution. And I have to tell you that. One of the questions you sent over was, how did you get those people, the the famous names in the shorts, Robert Picardo, H.M. Winant? But Robert Forster was at the Academy of Motion Pictures when Michael showed it's a frame up so it would be considered for an Oscar for Best Short. And so it didn't happen, of course. But Robert Forster approached him afterwards and said, I enjoyed that so much. If you ever do another one, please let me know. I'd love to do it. And sure enough, he co-starred in uh,
2: the Biffle murder case with (laughs) H.M. and the whole gang, you know, a lot of fun. I love how y'all did like an example of just about everything, like example of early color and a horror film. And, you know,
1: that's right. And the Cinecolor. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: The Vitaphone short. Yeah. Vitaphone. The Cinecolor was actually they
1: it took them forever to get that down because that's a a specific look, you know. Mm -hmm. For me, the, the highlight of shooting the entire thing was getting to do Slowly I Turn with the girls. <laughs> that was a, an honor. Let me put it that way. That's terrible. Leaving you on your wedding night. Where were you honeymooning? Niagara Falls?
2: Niagara Falls! Slowly I turn. Ooh. Step by step. What's the matter? By what are you, crazy? Well- Hey, hey watch the book. What are you, a judge? Oh, 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 hey! Yeah, oh, no, no. Oh, what I'll God. do if I ever see him again.
0: Yeah, that was the the short schmo boat, and yes. that had I th- that was special to me because the setting is basically a, a series of musical acts taking place on a showboat, mm-hmm. and in the orchestra you've got Dean Mora at the keyboard and. Yep. We're, uh, I knew him from many visits to the Los Angeles the Silent Movie Theater uh, mm-hmm. him performing yep. there and also uh, one of the acts is Janet Klein who yeah. I had also seen perform at the Silent Movie Theater so it was fun seeing them yeah. in that. That's where I met Rusty
1: Frank. When we go back to the the lady who introduced me to Will I was at a Janet Klein concert.
0: Ah all mm-hmm. right. Well, let me ask you this. When you and Will were f- crafting the team, was there a particular team that you used as your principal model?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting story uh, for me. They most resemble Abbott and Costello. And I know that has a lot to do with me because I'm very influenced by Lou. I became kind of known in Los- in the Los Angeles area for doing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And every review I ever got was like, okay, we're looking at him and we're seeing Phil Silvers, we're seeing Zero Mistel, we're seeing Luke Costello, we're seeing you know, Harry Ritz, we're seeing... And it's the truth. I'm inspired by all of those people. Um, Did you play Pseudalus? Yes. And of I course. was given always given license to AdLib. I, I was the only person on stage allowed to AdLib. I come from a time, there was a book by Max Wilk called The Great Broadway Clowns. And back in the 20s and 30s, they used to wrap entire shows around the talents of one or a team, one comedian or a comedy team. And they were free to do whatever they wanted. And I grew up, you know, reading about Groucho ad-libbing and doing this. So I became known for doing those kind of things. And that was why I was hired to be the genie in Aladdin. And, of course, is that way. My first Broadway show was that way. So uh, that was my specialty. So when we got down to deciding who was going to play straight and who was going to be comic, it kind of it fell to me kind of naturally. And I find it interesting that Will can be Bud Abbott-like, and he does slap me, but he's also Oliver Hardy-like. He has looks to the camera and he gives, you know, the, the noises and stuff. Uh, it's sort of a, between the two of us, it's a conglomeration of, a, of just a lot of people.
0: Yeah. And your in your performance as Biffle, I see a lot of Curly Howard, a lot of Lou Costello, mm-hmm. and yet not so much that it prevents a unique hybrid of your Thank own you. persona from coming to the front. Don't forget the Leo Gorcy hat and
2: the right the turned up Fedora.
1: <laughs>
0: Yeah, and pork pie. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I love too about the the way they're they're set up is each one of them has this. It's it's like they were released later by Blackhawk Films. There's an <laughs> opening frame with a history. This was the eighth of twenty films that Biffle and Schuster did released, in such and such, and all that. That's and so I, very I, clever. I love that. And they have fake credits utilizing well-known. Actors and comedy names, uh, you know, writers, directors, uh, James Parrott, Clyde Bruckman, and then you get the actors, um, Ray McCarry. <laughs> yeah. So just the the presentation of it is just really cool, and but also interesting too is that as authentic as the overall presentation is, you don't shy away from throwing in a little bit of uh, contemporary humor.
1: Just a little
0: something here and there, yeah.
1: You the fellow in charge here? Yes, my name's Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, just like the president. Supposedly, we are distantly related. That won't save you if you're guilty. And who are these birds? This is the rest of my family. My niece, Glenda Jackson, my nephew, Samuel Jackson, my other niece, Kate Jackson, and her husband, Peter Jackson. There was one thing where I made a bathroom joke that I don't think they would have made back then. when they says, let's go yeah. to the laboratory. I don't have to go. It's, you know, it's just, I don't think they would have used that back then. Yeah. There was another thing that was cut out. It's in the outtakes. And folks, there's more than two hours of outtakes.
0: Oh, yeah. And they're so much fun. Oh, but, lots uh, of great extras on that disc.
1: Oh, so he, Michael did such a great job on this this dvd i can't i can't say it enough and kino lorber thank you for releasing it but there's an outtake where i'm doing a scene behind the counter with will and a train was going by and i used it i, I grabbed my stomach and i went Ooh, you know i made a, a like it was me mm-hmm. and then i stopped the scene because i didn't think i should do that it, they wouldn't do that back then you know a, a gas joke but then again i, I realized that they did Back then. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a few of them did.
2: Well, did. if it's before
0: 1934. There you go. Pre code. Well,
1: yeah. Pre code. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I have to ask this one. Now, something unique in Biffle and Schuster. I've never seen any other comedy team, but I pr- presume it probably has its roots in vaudeville. But I want to know they have a standardized intro that they deliver when they're introduced.
1: Who might we be? B I F F F F O Biffle, Schuster. Biffle and Schuster, need we say more?
0: So tell me about that. Where did that come from?
1: Well, I can tell you that Will and I discussed the fact that Laurel and Hardy were always like, this is my friend. uh, My name is Oliver Norville Hardy. This is my friend, Mr. Laurel. It was always their, you know, grand introduction. Well, my partner, Will, who probably wrote about 8,000 songs, one of the things he loved to do, and he always put it in his songs, was spell things out. If you listen to the song from It's a Frame Up, he wrote that. That has spelling. It has, you know, spelling out the words and it all fits with the music. Well, that's one of the things he loved to do. And he came up with that whole introduction B I F F L E. I still don't know how to do it. I jumped in at the end. <laughs> Need we say more? And that was it. That became their their thing and now i have fans sending me fans and friends sending me t-shirts with our images on them with need we say more you know printed at the bottom i have um uh, christmas ornaments with our our likenesses on them these are from fans and friends you know it's just wonderful just a wonderful thing i'm glad it touched
2: so um, somebody's doing merch on you
1: well i guess it, uh, they're not charging they're, all, they're just Doing it out of out of the kindness of their hearts, and that's what Biffle and Schuster should be eliciting from people. Is uh,
0: which of those shorts do you regard as the best?
1: That's another one I had trouble with because I have scenes from I think three different shorts that are my favorites. My favorite scene is with James Beard from Walking Dead, Deadwood, and uh, whatever he was the captain in uh, in Schmobo. When we come to his office to announce that we're his new hosts.
2: Hey, Skipper, America's favorite comedy team is here.
0: Oh, the Marx Brothers. Send them right in. Aye, aye, sir. Here we are. It's us. Mm -hmm. How come there's only two of you? And where's the one with the phony mustache? Sir, we are not the Marx Brothers. You're not? Then who are you? Who are we? B-I-F-F-F-O-Biffle. S-H-W-O-Uster-Schuster. Biffle and Schuster. Need we say more? Yeah, what are you doing here? We're your new show hosts. You too. Got the contract right here. Huh. Are you any good?
2: <laughs> good, do you hear them? No. Good, we're
1: colossal. Stupendous. Mediocre. And then some. The last job we had, we were so funny, you could hear the laughter across the street.
0: Really? What was playing across the street?
1: <laughs> be a mutiny, I swear. Hold it, hold it, hold it. That's my favorite scene in any of the shorts. Because to me, it looks the most like an old movie, and everybody's right on. Everybody's 100%. So I love that. I also love the kitchen scene with Trish Geiger, where Biffle is cooking dinner with her. In drag. That's another uh, one of my favorites. And uh, I love Slowly I Turn from Shmobo. So maybe Shmobo is my favorite. You know That seems to have most of my favorite things. And What's my the- buddy is featured. You know, Will is featured singing uh, one of his songs, Sound, right.
2: which is really good. But it's probably like a, you know, which is your favorite kid kind of question. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> is.
0: It kind of yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. So, so what's the overall response been to that, to that overall, that whole project? Well,
1: if you ask Michael Schlesinger, he'll tell you that uh, he spent $355,000 on these shorts altogether. And he hasn't gotten a penny back. (laughs) It's not a big money maker. It's a niche product, you know, and the people that love it, love it. Like you, Jim, I have another friend who bought like 12 of them and she gave them out as Christmas gifts. People that love it, truly love it. And they know what we're trying to do. One of the people that wasn't crazy about it, I hate to say this, but Leonard Malton, he enjoyed it. He saw what we were trying to do, but I think he was might have been just a little too close. To that world you know mm-hmm. to give it a yeah. complete pass but everybody else just they see the magic of it they see the love that's in it and if you love that kind of stuff if you love those old comedians from the golden age there's nothing to complain about you know it's all there
0: yeah uh, mm-hmm. so what projects are you currently involved in well you mentioned the new podcast so we've, we've yes, covered that yes. what else have you got going on well um, other than the podcast i'm writing a new book on my own <laughs> It's from Bonaventure
1: Press, and it's, uh, I hate to say this, but it's about movie comedy
0: teams. Well, now, I don't know why you'd hate to say it. it uh, <laughs> I mean, gr- granted, Leonard did the, the classic there, but I mean, I always <laughs> felt like there there could be an update to that. You well, know, here's more contemporary deal. comedy teams that, that have come along in other generations, or even some that he didn't quite cover, like Shilling and Lane, for instance.
1: Right. Well, interesting. I, I have all their films on DVD, by the way. I just feel that Leonard's book is seminal. It is just, to me, like you guys, it started a lot with me. I was introduced to so much. And I credit, I told Leonard recently that you are mostly responsible for my love of this stuff. So what I would like to make this is an update, basically. I will give a an overview of career. Without getting too detailed, I just want it to be an overview. But then I put a personal opinion section. And that's where this is going to be a personal journey through the movie comedy teams, much like I did with the Evan and Costello book. Some people called me out on my opinions, you know, because I used I utilized my opinions. How dare you? The truth (laughs) of the matter is (laughs) the truth of the matter is if you want facts, go to Google. You want facts? You know, go to Bing, go to whatever. It's all there. Go to Leonard's book. It's all there. You want my opinions and what I see
2: as a performer
1: of 50 years? Then you read what I have to say. See if you agree with me, you know?
2: Well, you know, like what you said about how watching the uh, stuff on TV and when you were young, you know, it's kind of nice to read something where you find people with shared experiences.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you guys know Frank Delostrito? i can't um, say i do no he's an excellent excellent writer he's written some great magazine articles some books he wrote a book that he sent me recently called i saw what i saw when i saw it now we all know what that's from it's from abyn castell frankenstein and the book is basically what you just described jim it's from someone who went through the same things we went through and he just <laughs> recounts it and it's really quite delightful he's a yeah. good writer
0: well we can Go on forever on this because it's just it's so much fun we talking did. about this stuff. <laughs> well, oh, okay, now we're not going to get into the quantum stuff at this point, but um, <laughs> in, in order to uh, you know tie a bow on this, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask uh, first: quantum
1: oh. and now string theory. Yes. Oh, bada bing! <laughs> uh,
0: the question I ask all my guests as we get to the—I uh, just say all our guests. I mean, after all, it's not like you know, Jim's still here. Um, And that is, what is your most memorable movie going experience? That's easy. When I was
1: four years old, my father and mother took the entire family, including my baby sister, to see it's a mad, 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 mad world. And it made such an impression on me that I, in in a couple of ways, number one, I have a theory about our favorite films and our favorite film experiences. For me, they're tied to happy childhood experiences. I think that's why certain people love certain things almost obsessively, because they were so tied to it as children. But anyway, my father saw Jimmy Durante kick the bucket. He laughed throughout the entire film at that one gag. Then all the way home, in bed at night, we heard him, and it wasn't bad stuff. It was laughing. And then the following day at dinner, he was still talking about it. It, it really, it really affected him. Uh, and that became a big family story. Dad kicking the bucket, all that stuff. And he was a visual pun. Yeah, basically. Yeah. A, a literal joke. But I just remember all the laughter in the theater, the slapstick. Of course, I didn't you know, understand a lot of it, but. I didn't have to, I was surrounded by my family. We were all laughing together and I don't think there's anything better that you could do.
0: Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, as I say, this has been a lot of fun and uh, I just want to thank you for sharing your time with us. I had Uh, a wonderful time though. Thank you. Oh, Jim. Thank you. My pleasure. We should try to do this again and maybe I'd love to see, see what other, what other paths we can I have no idea how to end that sentence. Uh, <laughs> what other paths we can wander down? I suppose uh, aimlessly, uh, just see where the road takes us. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. I'm I'm very well versed on film in general, so it, it's not just you know Abbott and Costello. It's I'm I teach a lot of courses. Uh, over the internet you teach a lot of horses what Uh, yes mr ed was one of my best pupils Ah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) diction Uh, Um. yeah but anyway no i do i teach i teach uh, film studies and uh, show business basically my my next course is called siblings brothers and sisters of show
0: business Mm. okay well Mm -hmm. and where do you teach those
1: Uh, this is uh, a company called ollie it's the osher life life learning Institute. And, uh, I used to teach live in, uh, Los Angeles. Now it's over zoom. I teach. Uh, okay.
0: So online. Yes. yes. Okay. So people can, uh, just listening to us anywhere can maybe take advantage of that and tap into Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ah. Well, that sounds like it would be uh, a lot of fun to do. So well, thanks. For well, the plug. and go
1: to www.nicksantamaria.com for a lot more.
0: Yeah. Good point. Glad you got that in because I didn't didn't have it in my notes. (laughs) Shame on me. (laughs) Anyway, well, anyway, Nick, Santa Maria, thank you so much for joining us on Movie Nights and Matinees. Thank you. I had a ball. Thanks, Nick. We hope you've enjoyed our chat with Nick and also that you'll check out The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster, which you can find on the screening room page of the Movie Nights and Matinees website, along with a wide assortment of Abbott and Costello movies. Likewise, on the bookshelf page, You'll find Amazon links for The Annotated Abbott & Costello and The Biffle & Schuster Comic Book Compendium. Be sure to check out Nick's new podcast, Abbott & Costello Meet the Podcast, and visit nicksantamaria.com to learn more about his various projects, past and present. If you haven't already done so, remember to hit the subscribe, follow, or download button wherever you listen to our podcast, and please leave a rating and, where possible, a review. Also, be sure to swing by the Movie Nights and Matinees Facebook page, where you can leave comments, questions, baseball stats, or whatever crosses your mind. You'll also find some photos related to the topics of various episodes provided by our guests. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Share it around. And with that, episode 26 makes its exit and face plants into a closed door. (laughs) Be sure to return in a couple of weeks for episode 27. I'd like to tell you about it, but it's a complete mystery. I would like to see everybody, please, in the saloon, when all will be revealed.